This episode is brought to you by Bombas, game-changing socks. Bombas decided to take socks seriously by designing the most highly engineered, best-fitting, comfortable socks humans have ever imagined, and they look cool too. Woven so they don't fall down, warm in winter, cool in summer, no toe seams, arch support, and more. I'm wearing some right now. I've been wearing them all day, and with every purchase, they donate a pair to a homeless shelter where socks are the most requested item. I got a whole batch of these in the mail and there are all these different designs and colors and they have bumblebees on the side. I love them and they have a no questions asked money back guarantee if you decide you want boring, uncomfortable, technologically inferior socks instead. Go to bombas.com slash so smart for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M- B-A-S dot com slash so smart. Bombas. Be better. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 77. This is the ninth episode in a series of episodes, a season of episodes all about logical fallacies. Logical fallacies. If you haven't heard the earlier episodes, we covered what logical fallacies are and how they work. And then we talked about the fallacy fallacy, the no true Scotsman fallacy, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, the black and white fallacy, the straw man fallacy, begging the question, special pleading, moving the goalposts, and the genetic fallacy. If you are enjoying these shows about logical fallacies and all the stuff that came before all the other episodes and you would like to get them ad-free and get shows that no one else gets and get extras like unedited interviews and more, just go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart and become a patron and you'll get all those things. Our three returning experts in logic and reasoning and thinking in general I'm Vanessa Hill. I'm the writer and host of Braincraft, which is a PBS Digital Studios series on psychology, neuroscience, and why you act the way you do. So I'm Julia Galef. I a few years ago I co-founded this nonprofit called the Center for Applied Rationality. I have my own podcast called Rationally Speaking, um, in which I focused on applying concepts from psychology and philosophy and statistics to everyday life. I'm Bob Blaskowitz. I'm a assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University. Uh, I well, I, I teach students how to basically uh, read and think. And together, they are going to help us understand the conjunction fallacy. Now, there really is no better way to introduce this fallacy than this puzzle created by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky that first appeared in their original research into something called the representativeness heuristic. Let's see how you do. Here we go. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy, 
and as a student, she was deeply concerned with the issue of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Which of the following is more probable? One, Linda is a bank teller. Two, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. In their research, when asked this question, more than 80% of people chose number two, and that is wrong. It is not more probable that Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement than it is that she is just a bank teller alone. And it's worth noting, of course, that this was asked in the 1970s, so the feminist movement of that era was top of mind for many people, as was nuclear disarmament, but it's still likely that you got this wrong today. Most people still do. And this is an example of the subject of this episode. It's called the conjunction fallacy, because no matter what, it is not more probable that Linda is two things instead of just one. That's just not how this math works out. And more specifically, there are more bank tellers than there are bank tellers who are feminists all over the world. But if you ask the question in just the right way, you can get just about everyone to ignore those facts, to completely ignore the probabilities, even though they're pretty obvious when you take a look at them. You know, a conjunction of A and B is not going to be more likely than just A or just B in a purely logical sense. So what are some other ways that you might commit this logical fallacy? What are some other situations that might give rise to it? How can you better spot it? How can you defend against it when other people are using it to win arguments that you should be winning? All of that coming up after this message from one of our sponsors. Most of you listening to this podcast are lifelong learners, and I am too. And that's why I'm a big fan of this new video learning service, The Great Courses Plus. With The Great Courses Plus, you can learn about anything, anything that interests you, with unlimited access to thousands of The Great Courses lectures on fascinating topics taught by top professors. And I want you to try this. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus so they're giving my listeners an opportunity to watch their popular course, The Science of Information from Language to Black Holes and hundreds of other courses, absolutely free. The Science of Information, this is great stuff. This is so cool. Author and professor of physics, Benjamin Schumacher, dives into the concepts and history of information theory and how it has impacted technology, science, and even our understanding of reality itself. In this course, you will learn about linguistics and cryptography and neuroscience and genetics, economics, quantum mechanics, neurocodes of the brain, life's origins. It's, it's crazy. It goes from logic gates all the way up to the meaning of information itself. With The Great Courses Plus, watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including The Science of Information a $235 value for free when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Start watching today.
That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we're exploring the conjunction fallacy. The conjunction fallacy is where the probability of two things being true, so two things being a conjunction, can never be greater than the probability of one of those things being true. The conjunction fallacy is a reasoning error that you make um, when your intuition gets in the way of a probability judgment, um, especially when you're making a snap assessment of a situation. You add additional details to a scenario, to a hypothetical scenario, and it feels like these additional details make the scenario more probable. The probability of both condition A and condition B being true cannot be higher than the probability of A alone being true. So in a classic example, if you uh, were to compare the scenario uh, Russia and the U.S. suspend diplomatic relations to the scenario Russia and the U.S. suspend diplomatic relations because Russia invades Poland, the latter feels more probable. It's got this sort of nice logical story to it, but it's a subset of the former, right? So every time you add an, a, an extra condition to a claim or to a scenario, you're creating a subset of the previous scenario, and a subset has to be smaller or at least not bigger. Uh, so let's say my friend Alex lives on Venice Beach. He studied at UCLA and majored in exercise science. Is it more likely that A, he's a real estate agent, or B, he's a real estate agent and competes in triathlons? The single condition, Alex is a real estate agent, is more likely to be true than both of those things, just purely by mathematics. Like it's more likely that there are real estate agents than there are real estate agents who are also competitive triathletes. And okay, I but, know that's lo- I know that's logical. Yeah, that, that's logical, but it doesn't always compute psychologically because it's easier to imagine a scenario to be true when little things fit together. Mm-hmm. So for Alex, the little things are that you know, he lives on a beach, he studies exercise science, and he's just a casual athlete. Like those things are pieces to a puzzle that we can fit together in our mind. Like the real estate agent thing is random. Like it doesn't fit into any of those like schemas that we have about what someone who studies exercise science and lives on a beach does in their spare time. Does that make sense? That makes sense in a mathy math kind of way, which is what this um, is going to be because this is one of your more sort of uh, charted out and look at it on paper kind of fallacies. But yeah. I'm wondering if there, if there are any sort of, are there any real world examples that, that come to mind when you think about this? Yeah. Um, at my alma mater, uh, you can get your PhD in English. Um, and in the course of doing that, uh, you can test on any number of historical or genre-based subspecialties. Um, so let's say that you have a guy named Gary and his entire life, he's been reading Shakespeare obsessively and knows all the plays and, and the sonnets by heart. And so you ask yourself, you know, what is more likely that he's a graduate student in English or a graduate student in English with a subspecialty in Renaissance literature. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would jump to, well, he, clearly it's more likely that he's a, a graduate student in English with a specialty in Renaissance literature, where actually uh, the percentages kind of whittle away uh, at the subgroup. So let's say you have like um, 
uh, 5% of graduate students are in English departments and 5% of those are uh, Renaissance scholars in Mm -hmm. training, right? Um, You forget that that's actually a very – an even smaller set uh, than uh, just the number of people who are English graduate students. Yeah, this this is um, very similar and and part of why we get sort of uh, trapped in – a logic problem here is that it's it's related to the representativeness heuristic and mm-hmm. which is um daniel kahneman's and tversky's great um one of their original heuristics when they first introduced all that to the world and so the way they presented it it, it reformatted to bring up this conjunction fallacy is the describing um a bank teller they called linda yes who, the more and more details you hear about linda the more and more she sounds like she is um, they, they tell you that she majored in philosophy and that she was, uh, interested in social issues, social justice. Yeah. 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 And, and that she was a demonstrator. And then they ask, is it more likely that she's a bank teller or that she's a bank teller and active in the feminist movement? And that's like the classic conjunction fallacy because the conjunction is in the sentence, the, and the mm-hmm. for, for, and nor, but, or, so I, I learned it in school with, uh, fanboys, uh, for, and nor, but, or, so, uh, <laughs> so. That's how I learned it. Oh. And so the conjunct is whatever's on both sides of that conjunction. And so that's, that's what you get there. Is it Linda's a bank teller and active in the feminist movement? And it seems more likely, but it's actually less likely. Yeah, you absolutely want to jump and, and bite down hard on on the stereotypes, right? You know, and hold on to them um, and let them inform your your uh, your decision. But no, you can't do it. This one really upsets our intuitions a lot. Oh, it does. And we definitely categorize people to be one way or another. And we love pieces of information, even if it's only a small bit of information that fits into that idea that we have. Like in a way, Alex is a variation of Linda. And you could also say that, hey, um, she went to a liberal arts school in Ohio and studied political science, is it more likely she's a bank teller or is it more likely she is a bank teller with a Bernie Sanders bumper sticker? Mm -hmm. And everyone would be like, oh, definitely a Bernie Sanders supporter. But when you think about it, how many people actually put a bumper sticker on their car and how many people study political science and then become a bank teller and also put a bumper sticker on their car? The the more conditions that you bring in, the less probable all of them are to be true. Yeah. And you're, and you're not, you also don't pay attention to how many things have you not been told about Alex? Like, uh, yes, yes. Like there could be a lot more information here that doesn't have anything to do with, uh, exercising and, uh, and, uh, the beach and stuff like that. I mean, um, have much more to do with the other side of what you're trying to say. Yeah, definitely. But we have this tendency just to grab onto a small amount of information that we have. It's such a great example of how we don't, um, seem to naturally think in statistical terms and once you start to introduce probabilities we start going uh, yeah it's really it's really hard we did not uh we did not evolve to deal well with uh abstractions in general including probabilities Um, how do I know, how do I spot this in the wild? How do I say, ah, that, that feels like that might be a conjunction fallacy. I think, I think 
it's easy to spot in the wild when people are making assumptions about things because all of these ideas about Alex or Linda or whoever it is are based on assumptions that we have. Um, I see people doing this a lot with homeless people. So when you have a really small amount of evidence, like people say um, homeless people are, are mentally ill, and that's an easy association for us to make, but we don't have any accurate data on this. And studies that we have done show that homeless people who are mentally ill are still a minority in terms of the, the homeless population, but mm. it seems more probable to us because we may have had one encounter with one person or observed one person um, kind of acting how we would consider odd when we're driving our car or something like that, and, mm-hmm. and then we think that this is true. I would say anytime someone is speculating, and they're speculating in the form of telling a story or painting a picture, um, then your alarm bell should go off a little bit, like... You see this a lot from from futurists, for example. Uh, they're in the business of painting compelling pictures of what the future will look like, often alluring pictures or scary pictures. And these pictures tend to have a lot of details tacked on, like uh, you know there will be super intelligent AI, and uh, it will it will lead to robots taking our jobs, and also we will fall in love with the robots, and also this will undermine traditional marriage and also this will you know weaken the republican party etc cetera, etc cetera. maybe that doesn't sound plausible because i was uh, coming up with it on the spot but my point is just that you know if, when someone is speculating about something that might happen um and they're they're telling this this compelling story that should you know tip you off to be a little more alert or or critical thinking um, because it's usually going to be unlikely that all the details they're adding are correct, are going to come true. I am very prone to committing this fallacy. What is what is a good way to, what sort of a, a, a rule of thumb or some advice you could give to people to avoid committing it themselves? So I would say you should force yourself to think in terms of probability and not just plausibility. So your brain will instinctively try to answer the question, how plausible is this or how much how, how much sense does this make? Um, and details do make things more plausible. So you have to consciously ask yourself, no, 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 how probable is this? And and try to estimate the probability, you know, quantify it from zero to one, just roughly. Um, and when you're in that mode, it's easier, it feels more natural to, to do things like look at relevant statistics, like base rates, you know. Uh, how common is it for a country to break off diplomatic relations with another country, for example? And those statistics are going to be a more reliable source of predictions than your intuitive sense of how plausible a story is. I think it's hard to avoid committing because we're all prone to these fallacies even when we know that they exist. Mm. Uh, So probably thinking critically is key and even looking for evidence to back up your ideas Mm -hmm. helps avoid committing this fallacy as well. If you, let's say you did find yourself in a situation maybe where, uh, where you were being uh, someone was committing the fallacy and it was uh, hard, you know, you were trying to come to some sort of good faith argument thing. And uh, what would be your advice on how to defend against it? Well, I, you know, what you can do to make them realize that the the reasoning is wrong is to have them put a number to the uh, uh, the odds. And, you know, you multiply those odds together, that those percentages together, and you'll see you, you will get something smaller. Right. Um, and that's how you avoid making it yourself. Right. You, you, you try to not think with your gut. Um, 
<laughs> this is yeah. That's that, is, that ends up being the advice so often in these things is try not to think with your gut. It absolutely, is, absolutely. It, it's so hard to do because the gut is such a useful tool when things are all when things are kind of when all of the uh, variables are kind of in your favor and things are their best case scenarios. The gut can be very very useful, but mm-hmm. in modern life, in the world we live in, with all of its really bizarro, not uh, original conditions kind of things we have to deal with as a biological animal organism primate thing. Um, oftentimes gut stuff is, uh, well, it, ne- it needs to be checked. Well, yeah. I mean, so you have to, 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 to recognize that your int- intuition can be wrong and always keep that in mind. Um, and you know, the, the, the thing that's so frustrating though, is that they served us so well, these, these emotional reactions to, um, to things, uh, I think they're much older, than our, you know, rationality. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, I think the emotions and, and the gut instinct will always, always try to win. I mean, sure. Yeah. Um, it, you have to struggle against it. Yeah. They're, they're older and faster. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you're thinking about populations, if you're thinking about it, well, this came up, I thought about this just the other day it was like, uh, somebody had asked a question on the internet that I was reading it on Reddit about how, how um, why do, why do groups of like zebra all run away from the predator? Why don't they just turn around and try to stomp them to death? Cause obviously they could, they have greater numbers and they were trying to relate that to scenarios where people run away from attackers instead of ganging up on them. And they, somebody explained a scientist explained that, um, well, their intuitive emotional response is to run away because, you know, any, any animal that doesn't run away is its likelihood of dying goes up significantly. And that means that, when you start to enter in, um, when you enter selective forces into this scenario, that's an, that's an animal who's less likely to have offspring. So that's true. So that behavior, just the idea, even though that might be a superior strategy, objectively, when we look at it from the outside, it's something that is, will be very difficult for natural selection to select for, because it would, it simply bounces you out of the selection process, making it difficult to carry to the next generation. So oftentimes the better move is not the move that's going to have been programmed into your head through evolution. What if you're on the other side of it, though? What if you realize someone is committing this fallacy? What's the best way to counter it? What's the best way to say, no, uh, maybe you're not right? Well, in general, I'm not a big fan of pointing out to someone that they're committing a fallacy, uh, especially <laughs> when you're using the literal word fallacy. I don't I don't find that endears you to people very much. Um <laughs> But, you know, if I think someone's committing the conjunction fallacy and I, I want to have a productive conversation with them about the topic, usually I'll try to break down their claim into its component parts and talk about each part separately. So uh, if someone is, is freaking out because he's worried that, that his project is going to fail and his boss is going to fire him um, and he can paint this, this scary story of what's going to happen, I might just... just break it down and say, okay, so what's the probability that your project will fail? All right, let's try to estimate that. Okay, now conditional on your project failing, what's the probability that your boss will be angry with you? And conditional on him being angry at you, what's the probability he would fire you over it? So I try to really just just 
think about each piece separately so it becomes kind of clear how the probability goes down as you add more terms. I just also want to add the warning that sometimes future predictions involve disjunctions, not conjunctions, um, meaning that there are multiple paths uh, by which we could end up at the same scenario. So your conditions that you're adding are separated by or, not by and. Like, uh, we could end up with super intelligent AGI or artificial general intelligence if we figure out how to upload a human brain. Or if we figure out how to copy the brain's algorithms, or if we invent a new form of intelligent algorithm, etc. And in the case of a disjunction, the overall probability goes up as you add conditions, not down. So you just have to be careful not to conflate disjunctive um, predictions with conjunctive ones. On a daily basis, um, I don't know that I've ever called someone on the conjunction fallacy out. You know, like all the examples that I'm thinking of have been like the Linda example and kind of constructed to illustrate the point in psychology experiments. So, you know, uh, you defend yourself against it, I guess, by not participating in psychology experiments. <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess that would be one way to do it. Bob Blaskowitz is an assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University and very active in the skeptic community. You can find him in places like virtualskeptics.com, skepticalhumanities.com, and the Skepticality Podcast. Vanessa Hill is a science educator and writer and stop-motion animator who hosts BrainCraft, which you can find on YouTube as part of the PBS Digital Studios family, where she teaches psychology and neuroscience through crafty, interesting videos, her website is nessiehill.com. Julia Galef is the president and co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality, and she hosts the Rationally Speaking podcast in addition to making YouTube videos, lecturing, and writing for a number of publications you've probably heard of. You can find her at juliagalef.com. I'll have links to all their stuff at youarenotsosmart.com and in the show notes. And up next, a short ad from a sponsor, and then a cookie, and then the credits. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. If you need to make a website, you need to use Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page or a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. And it's easy. Creating a website with Squarespace is simple. It's an intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and all your features with just a click of your mouse or your trackpad, and you get a free custom domain. Squarespace makes adding that domain simple. If you sign up for a year, you get a free custom domain for free for that year. And no matter what it is that you're trying to make, no matter what kind of website you've come up with, you have a customer support team that's available to you 24-7. Every day, every hour, no matter what, no matter how technical your problem, no matter how trivial it seems, if you have a question, they will answer it. 
Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code so smart to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com and the offer code so smart. And now we return to our program. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader of the books. And if you send in a recipe and Mandy cooks them, that's my wife, Amanda, if she cooks those cookies and I eat them on the show, you get a signed copy of either You Are Not So Smart, the book, or the sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. Send those recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And we have all the recipes up at the website, You Are Not So Smart. Just find the cookie stuff. They're all there. You don't have to go to Pinterest anymore. We put them all up on the website. Detailed instructions, pictures, the whole thing. So this episode, the cookie comes from Justin Near. I have his email printed on paper in front of me. It says... I hope you enjoy our family recipe for monster cookies. Hopefully that's named after Cookie Monster. He did not detail why, but he said milk is generally a required part of the meal. And these cookies are best at breakfast, though I will eat them anytime I need a protein pick-me-up. Crumbs can be made into a yummy cereal. Justin near Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, Justin, I've had so many of these. We even brought these to a party. I just got a new puppy. Our family just got a new dog. Bishop is his name. We had this big party. Everybody brought a bunch of dog toys as gifts, and we passed out your cookies at that party, and they were a huge hit. Here are the ingredients. Eggs, brown sugar, white sugar, unsweetened applesauce, vanilla, maple syrup, baking soda, butter, coconut, peanut butter, oatmeal, mini chocolate chips, and M&M's. Mm. <clears throat> Let's have a bite before we talk about this. Here we go. Mmm. Still great. Mmm. Delicious, 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 delicious. Justin, oh, these cookies, they're just such pure goodness. I mean, they're, they are E.T. They're the Statue of Liberty. They're Mr. Rogers. They're Kermit the Frog. They're just, there's nothing. They're unalloyed good. A river runs through it. They are, you know, you know, when you actually make, you actually pack a picnic and you actually go somewhere nice and on the grass, you take out the blanket and you take out the, that checkered pattern table cloth stuff that un, did you unfold out of the basket. And that moment when you're untucking it and you see all just the pure goodness of the picnic basket. That is what these cookies are. They are just childhood happiness, sunrises, ocean waves, delicious, good, good goodness. I mean, they should seem like candy, but they don't. They just seem like a grandmother's hug. Mm. If that if that sounds appealing to you for breakfast, if you would like grandma hugs, 
for breakfast as a meal replacement, then you need to get these cookies uh, in your house, in your mouth. And the way you do it is you go to youarenotsosmart.com. We will have the recipe there and a picture of it. And Justin, thank you so much. They're so good. Justin Neer from Nashville, Tennessee, Monster Cookies. I thank you. These were fantastic. They're perfect. I'm going to continue eating them the rest of the week as I work more on my book. These cookies will fuel my brain. A book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Please go to boingboingpodcast.com and check out all the other podcasts in their family. I love, personally, I love fast forward stories about the future, but I'm sure you will find something there that you will like just as much as that, if not that one being the one that is your favorite after this one, of course. Thank you again to Bombas for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget, go to bombas.com. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash so smart to get 20% off of your first order. (laughs) Seriously, they are really good socks. I am actually wearing them right now and nothing else. Go to youarenotsosmart.com, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and you can find all the previous episodes of this show. Support this show at patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Find us on Facebook. We are just youarenotsosmart. On Twitter, it's at notsmartblog. I am at David McRaney. And this music is Banjo Apocalypse. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And the show notes will be at youarenotsosmart.com. Oh, yeah. And the email address, that's david at youarenotsosmart.com. Send me a cookie recipe. It'll have to be really good to top this one. Mm-hmm.